Acts 18. Oh, I, I've, I've drunk lots of yerba mate today, so we're gonna be we're gonna be in for a wild ride. All right, Acts chapter 18, first 23 verses. <laughs> and actually, I need to calm. It's a bit hot, and I don't want to get like overexcited about everything and just pass out. We don't want that to happen. All right, Acts chapter 18, 1 to 23. Here we go. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, I think I pronounced that right, Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sostenus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. All right, let's pray. God, there is so much in here that will be valuable to us. 
um, I ask that what you've led me to focus on would be enough because you are enough and God you are in our midst and through your Holy Spirit you are bringing your word to life in each of our hearts God this is a confidence I have this is I'm looking to you and I'm just saying God may everything I say and be pleasing to you but what I don't get to say God may you speak to your people through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so it was, um, I think it was several Christmases ago, and my family and I were driving, we had been driving around some of the neighborhoods looking at the Christmas lights and enjoying ourselves and being excited for the Christmas season. Um, we got home parked in our driveway, um, told the kids to get out the car, because you know how that is. You've got to not only tell them once, but twice, ten times even, and they finally get out the car. Um, I get out the car, I go around to open the door for our youngest and help her get out, and the way our car, our driveway is, um, the it, it, it's on a slope, okay? And because of that reason, the door, one of the doors, the door I just opened, one of the passenger doors, um, closes easily, okay? You've got to kind of keep it open with your hip or something. But if you don't, it closes on its own. And so I take Eden out, and as I take her out, I don't know what happened. My finger must have been placed right where the door shuts, and the door shut right on my finger. Um, how did I react? I'm a dad. I'm trying to be all strong and mighty before my kids, but I didn't care. I was like, oh, and I didn't just scream loud. I literally threw myself on the floor thinking my, you know, because you think the worst, don't you? You think my fingers come off, it's stuck in the door, there's blood everywhere. That's what I'm thinking. I'm on the floor. And all this time, my wife is freaking out. My kids don't know what's happening. And I tell you guys that story because that was probably one of the first times that my kids who look up to that, who think their dad is the strongest man in the world, who thinks their dad can you know, dunk over LeBron James or something, um, they saw me in my weakness. They saw me um, as a human just like them who has weaknesses and who at times um, feel pain. Now, the story we've just read and the story we're going to go back and look closely at reveals to us something incredibly important. And it helps us know that the Apostle Paul, okay, who historically, if you ask any historian, he is seen as kind of the most successful Christian missionary ever. And Paul has always come across as a strong man. Paul has always come across as a man who can meet adversity and overcome adversity and endure through pain and persecution. But in this story, we are going to witness the Apostle Paul express weakness. 
let's jump in. And so after his time in Athens, so last week, Paul, we saw how Paul was in Athens. Um, after he was in Athens, he travels um, southwest to another city called Corinth. And like most of the cities Paul visited because he was very strategic with where he went, okay? He didn't go to, like, boring cities, okay? Um, if <laughs> I don't want to say anything about someone's city, but let's just say if Paul was doing missionary work in the state of California, he would want to go to San Francisco, okay? Or Sacramento, or Los Angeles, okay? Or even San Diego, he wouldn't want to go to any of the other cities that are not um, as popular as those cities. And so he goes to Corinth, very strategic city. Corinth was a center for trade and travel, and it was populated by people from all over the world. Corinth may have been the center of trade, but unfortunately, it did not have the best of reputations. Why? Corinth was known for being an immoral city. David Guzik, who's a Bible teacher and author, explains um, a bit of what Corinth was like. He says, and it should come up, be beautiful. Corinth was a city with a reputation for loose living and especially sexual immorality. In classical Greek, to act like a Corinthian meant to practice fornication. And a Corinthian companion meant a prostitute. Okay? And so if um, the intellectual city of Athens was like our very own Boston, okay, Corinth was a bit like Las Vegas, um, if you're American, or Amsterdam, if you're European. People went to Corinth to indulge in wild living and fulfill their sexual fantasies. Corinth was definitely the sin city of the ancient world. Not long after Paul arrives in Corinth, he meets a Jew named Aquila. Aquila is married and his wife's name is Priscilla. They just moved to Corinth from Italy because the Roman Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay, there are so many reasons. This is an actual historical event that happened. There was um, this anti-Semitic um, um, movement against Jews to get them out of Rome at the time. And so Aquila and Priscilla, like so many other Jews, um, are forced out of Rome and they end up in Corinth. They are a power couple. Okay, they are business owners and they own a business that manufactures tents. They are in the tent making business. And guess what? Paul, our very own apostle, is also a tent maker. Okay, and so when Paul meets with Aquila and Priscilla, they um, find out that he's a tent maker. 
they offer him a job, he accepts the position, and he starts to work for them um, so that he can provide for himself. Um, and so you can imagine, Paul the Apostle has just arrived in this sex-obsessed city of Corinth, and God has provided for him. God has provided these Jews, and God's also provided um, a job for him. Look at verse 4 and 5. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in a synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so, Paul, what have we learned from him every time he gets into a new city? Right? He goes to the local synagogue so that he can help his Jewish brothers and sisters understand that Jesus is not just this man, okay, but Jesus is actually the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messianic king they've all been waiting for. And that is exactly what Paul does in Corinth. He goes to the synagogue and it also talks about how Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. You remember, he, he left them in Philippi. Okay, and for a while he's been without his two most closest assistants in the ministry. And now there's just this big reunion going on where Silas and Timothy arrive and connect back with Paul. And so Paul, every Sabbath day, okay, no, during the week, he would be working as a tent maker. And every Sabbath day, you would find Paul in the synagogue doing all he can to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. Paul may, may have been a tent maker, but he never lost focus of his ultimate goal in life, and that was to know Jesus and make him known. And guess what? Paul's goal in life should also be our ultimate goal in life. Our goal, the reason for our existence is to know Jesus and make him known. And the reason for this is, and you guessed it, it's coming, the majority of the people in our city and our nation have a totally wrong view of who Jesus is. If you were if we all were to get a bunch of microphones and a camera and go ask people, okay, downtown PB, who Jesus is, I guarantee we would get so many different opinions as to who Jesus is. But most people will have the opinion that Jesus was a really good guy a great moral teacher, a visionary, and maybe even a prophet. Put simply, the, um, the, 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 idea of, the idea that most people have of Jesus is that he was this cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people. This is popular opinion. Pastor and author Mark Clark says this, Many people are willing to accept Jesus as an inspiring leader, 
a friend or an archetype of a compassionate religious guru, but not as Lord, not as the master and ruler of their lives. The call to follow him is seen as too fanatical, too devoted, and a little naive. That's the popular opinion as to who Jesus is. Like the Apostle Paul in Corinth, we're called to give our life to knowing Jesus and making him known. Like Paul, our mission is to share the gospel, which basically reveals Jesus' true identity as king and calls people to surrender their lives to him as master and ruler of their lives. And so the question we have to wrestle with and think about this morning is this. In your opinion, who is Jesus? Do you truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you truly believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God? How you answer this question has eternal implications. Who is Jesus? And this is what our lives should be all about. Knowing Jesus for who he truly is and making him known to others. And so since arriving in Corinth, Paul has not only been making tents, like we've just found out, he's been in the local synagogue every Saturday helping his Jewish brothers and sisters who see who Jesus really is. And so the question we have to figure out next is, how, how did people respond in Corinth? How did the Jews respond to the fact that this guy is coming and telling them that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he, that is Paul, shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay? In the past, what would happen is Paul would go to a city, communicate the gospel. When people would oppose him, he would just simply move on. But in Corinth, what does he do, right? He shakes, um, um, shook out his garment, all right? All right, shakes dust off his garment. And what that basically meant was him communicating to them that he's done, right? He's basically unfollowing them, <laughs> right? He's basically saying, hey, I have done all I can to help you see who Jesus is, but you keep opposing it and you keep rejecting it. I am done with you, okay? I, I am innocent because I've done my part. According to God, I have done all that I can. And if you guys are not going to listen to me, I'm going to move on and start focusing on getting the gospel to Gentiles. 
And Gentiles basically means non-Jews. Look at verse 7 and 8. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. Titius Justus was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a worshiper of God. That means even though he was a Gentile, he, 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 he had some sort of idea of who God is and did his best to worship the one true God. And Justice, Titius Justice, he lived next door to the synagogue. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, guess what happens to him? He believes in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. This is crazy. Paul's like, I'm done with you Jews. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He finds a Gentile, Titius Justice, who's a worshipper of God, who happens to live next to the, um, to the synagogue. He starts to communicate the gospel to Titius Justice. And then apparently the Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, was probably hearing what he was saying and he gives his life to Christ, and it, it, it gets even better. Like his entire family and many other Corinthians believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and express their newfound faith in Jesus through baptism. This is crazy. Think about it. In this crazy, immoral city of Corinth, Paul's time there may have began on a sour note, but things are beginning to get a lot better. What Paul longed for was beginning to happen, okay? People, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, are beginning to believe and surrender their life to Jesus Christ. This is crazy. This is amazing. God is at work in and through Paul's life. What I'm about to say next may be surprising to you, but it's true. In the midst of all of this awesome thing that is happening, okay, with people getting saved, all of that, Paul is discouraged. I told you. What I was about to tell you may be surprising, but it's true. Paul is discouraged. Some people, scholars, probably think at this point he was depressed. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Awesome things happening. How can Paul, the apostle, be in a state of discouragement and depression. Look at verse 9. And the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. All right, so, so far, as we've seen, Paul's time in Corinth has been fruitful. Yeah, he's had some opposition, but 
overall, there has been some success. People have been saved. He's found community in Aquila and Priscilla. Um, he's reunited with Silas and Timothy. Um, a lot of good things are happening. Lots of encouraging things are happening. And so the question is, why did Jesus need to appear to him in order to encourage him and tell him not to be afraid? And the reason for that is he was afraid. He was fearful. And so why was Paul fearful? He's been through a lot ever since he was commissioned for this mission. In recent months, check it out. If you've been with us through Acts or if you've ever read Acts before, just kind of focusing in on all the struggles Paul went through. He's been through a lot. In the recent months, he's suffered terrible beatings in some of the cities, all right? He's been rejected. There's been civil unrest. He's been come before um, governors to, um, to, 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 um, because people have been lying and all of those things. And he's ended up in prison. Um, he's had near-death experiences, death threats, ill-treated, spent time in jail, as I said. So Paul, as you can imagine, he's been through a lot. And all of these challenges, what have they done? They've slowly weighed him down. And so at this moment in his life, Paul's tired. And I would say he's kind of frustrated, especially with the countless number of people who reject the gospel and see it as bad news when it's the best news any human can receive. And we get a glimpse of how Paul felt when he arrived in Corinth in the opening verses okay, of the first letter he wrote to the Christians in Corinth um, later um, after his visit. Look at um, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there. You can make a note of it. It says, this is Paul. This is how he felt when he arrived in Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Wow. Our Kent Hughes helps us understand what Paul was going through. He says, Paul had been under excruciating tension for a long time, and he was losing his ability to rebound. And so in Corinth, Paul is in need of encouragement. And God being the ever faithful and loving God provides Paul with much needed encouragement. Verses 9 and 10. And although these words of encouragement were originally for Paul when he was in the ancient city of Corinth, we can benefit from them as well. These very words by Jesus to Paul in Corinth can also be a source of encouragement for us as we seek to be a church family on mission with Jesus. And so as we feel discouraged by the many challenges that 
that come our way, um, let's have a look at verse 9 and 10 to see how it can encourage us, all right? First, the reason Jesus tells Paul to not be afraid. Again, this may come as a surprise to you. Paul being afraid, Paul, the most durable and um, enduring missionary, afraid, yes, he was. And the reason he was fearful was this. If you remember in the past, every time Paul preached the gospel and people believed, what happened? Persecution followed. Hostility has always followed gospel proclamation. This has happened in every city he's been in so far. And if it's happened in every other city, if persecution has followed gospel proclamation, then it's highly likely it will happen in Corinth. And this is exactly why Paul is afraid. He's looking back and seeing the pattern and thinking, man, I'm in Corinth, um, one of the most godless cities <laughs> around, and I, um, I have started to preach the gospel, and I want to continue to preach the gospel, and likely there's a good chance that I am going to encounter intense hostility and persecution. He knows because of the impact of the gospel. And the impact of the gospel always brings wave upon wave of trouble. R. Kent Hughes again says, Paul, from Paul's perspective, the immediate future was predictable. The diabolical pattern was quite clear. He was like a boxer who knows what is coming when he answers the bell. All right? <laughs> we know what that is. If you're a boxer and the bell rings, you know you're going to get hit. And so Paul's feeling that way. He's worried about troubles he was not yet facing. And so the risen Lord tells Paul not to be afraid. Second, the risen Jesus doesn't just tell Paul to not be afraid. He also commands him to go on speaking and do not be silent. In other words, Paul, do not be afraid of the troubles that come with preaching the gospel. Do not allow those fears to silence you. Continue to preach the gospel. Continue to tell everyone, everywhere, who I am and what I've achieved for them through my life, death and resurrection. Don't give up preaching the gospel. Don't let fear silence you. What are you afraid of? What are some of your greatest fears? For Paul, as we've seen, it was the opposition and hostility he was certain to face because of the gospel. And some of you might have the same fears. You may fear the personal sacrifice, ridicule, and hostility that comes with following Jesus closely and intimately. 
You know that as you aim to live radically for Jesus, right? If your aim in life, as you're thinking, and as we've been going through Acts, you're like, man, I don't want to live a boring, sleepy, nominal Christian life. That's very tempting, and I want to do all that I can to resist it. I want to live for Jesus for real. I want to be radically sold out for Jesus. And so as you consider that, okay, you're also aware that what comes with that kind of lifestyle is possible rejection and hostility and opposition, There's a possibility family and friends may make life difficult for you. There's a chance people will think you're weird for believing Jesus is God and that he's the only hope for humanity. People are going to think you're weird, right? There's a possibility members of your family will get mad, think you're insensitive, and want nothing to do with you. There will be strained relationships because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Like Paul, you may be fearing the troubles that are certain to come with following Jesus closely and intimately. In fact... Jesus' call to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him absolutely freaks you out every time you consider what that actually means. But for some of you, your fears have nothing to do with living for Jesus and evangelism or anything like that. Your fears are related to the everyday struggles we have as a result of living in this broken world. Some of you are anxious about the future of your marriage. Will you make it another year without considering divorce? How long will you be married for? You had visions of growing old together. But as conflict and challenges have come, you're beginning to wonder, are we ever going to make it? When are the wheels going to fall off? When are we going to want to give up on each other? Because all around us, things are happening and people are giving up. And everywhere I go, there are billboards um, um, from divorce lawyers and attorneys. What's going on? Some of you have career-related fears. Will you be able to get the job you've worked hard so hard for? Some of you fear for your health. It's highly likely you'll be in a hospital bed any moment from now. Some of you fear you'll not be able to pay the bills and provide for your family. Some of you fear that you'll never be able to break free from pornography or masturbation or um, sexual sin or anything like that. These are fears you guys have. I have fears too. I fear legit let me be honest that this church plant could fail and the reason i say that is because we're in a a, a part of the city this neighborhood la jolla and pb when we were first coming and planting church all we kept hearing was this zone right here is a graveyard for church plants and so every other day i have fears that this church will fail I also fear my family will have more visa issues in the future. 
I fear my kids will grow up not wanting to be part of the local church. I have these fears because I look at statistics that talk about PKs and how they grow not really. Um, you know, I have fears. You have fears. What are the fears you have as you consider the troubles that will come your way because of your commitment to Jesus Christ? What challenges do you fear the most in this broken and corrupt world that we live in? Our world is jacked up. It really is. And what are your fears? As you consider navigating through this world. Most important questions we now have to explore is this. What will help you overcome these fears? Yes, it's good to acknowledge our fears, but I think we need to move on to thinking about, man, what will help us? Is there any help? Are we meant, are we meant to just wallow in our fears and allow them to consume us and dictate how we live? Or is there hope? Can we endure? Can we overcome some of these real life everyday fears we encounter yes there is hope and it's not a list of strategies or practical steps found in a self-help book or videos but the only sure solution for your fears and anxieties is found in a person and his name is Jesus Christ why is that? Uh, what will help you overcome your fears? First, by resting in the promise that Jesus is always with you. All right? Look at verse 9 and 10 again. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What does it say next? What does it say next? For I am with you. As you can imagine, Paul arrived in Corinth on his own, okay? Before he met up with Aquila and Priscilla, before he was reunited with Timothy and Silas, he was all alone in one of the most immoral cities in the ancient world. And as he observed the immorality all around him, I can imagine he felt powerless to make a difference. His goal was to go to every city, preach the gospel, and see God move powerfully. But now he's in Corinth and he's looking around going, wow, it's intense. I don't know if God's ever going to make the kind of impact I expected. Plus, there is a huge chance there's going to be some extreme rejection and I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. And so he's struggling with the fear of failure. He's anxious about the persecution he's likely to face. Paul needed to be reminded of the promise that Jesus has been with him in the past. Jesus is with him now. And Jesus will be with him every moment in his future. Now, this truth, the idea of Jesus being with Paul, wasn't just for him in Corinth. Right? The truth is... Whether we believe this or not, Jesus is also with us right here in 2021 in San Diego. He, he really is. Okay. Um, wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in, 
Jesus will be with us. Ed Welsh, incredible counselor guy, has this to say. I am with you is the gift to anxious people. Our worries usually imply that we need someone, the right protector, the right fixer, who is close and is for us. Only those who know Jesus actually have that someone. How many times have you read and have you heard that Jesus is with you? Sure, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard, you've heard it a lot of times. Although this is true, if you're like me, you struggle to believe it. In fact, we just don't struggle with the idea of God being with us. Sometimes, if we're honest, God feels really, really far away. Where are you, Lord? Why are you hiding yourself from me? I'm your child. You're supposed to be my father, all right? Does it feel like, sure feels like you're ignoring me. How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will I seek you only to find silence? I'm languishing, oh Lord, do not delay. Oh my God, does that sound familiar? It might not be the exact words, but you have communicated something like this from the depths of your soul. Also, Kristen Wetherill says, if this sounds like the cry of your heart, be comforted. You're not experiencing anything new or abnormal. You're in the same boat as a multiple of other Christians who have gone before you and who now walk beside you. There's some comfort in this reality. Basically, what I just read to you is from a psalm. A psalm of David. David, the man after God's own heart. And from the depths of his soul, he's crying out and asking, God, where are you? God, basically, you seem so far away. Um, same author, Kristen, goes on to say, Knowing others have been there only shaves off a corner of our worry. We need God's word to speak to us about this reality that we might know how to persevere and wait with hope when God feels far away. She's basically saying, look, um, don't rely on your feelings, but rely on truth. Rely and dwell deeply in the fact that God has said over and over again in his word, in his scriptures, that he is with you. God's word is incredibly powerful. It's not just a book of stories and commands of what to do and what not to do. It's alive and it's transforming. Instead of speaking to you with a voice, okay, God speaks to you in writing. Through God's word, 
we can persevere with hope because it's our good and great God who is speaking to us in real time through his word. And so the question is, um, how do we know Jesus is with us? How do we know he'll never leave or forsake us? Because he's repeatedly told us in the scriptures. And what that means is this. We will, we must, in order for us to believe that God is truly with us, we must resolve to know and to spend time reading and studying his word. And again, it's just so basic, isn't it? This is what happens to me. Whenever life is going well, and when things are awesome, my Bible reading plan is good, but I kind of just read, okay? But it's when I encounter trouble, it's when I come face to face with my fears that I'm like, man, God, I need you. And what that does is it leads me not only to my knees, but to discovering his promises to me in his word. And I pray every day that I would do this. I would not wait until I encounter trouble. I'll not wait until I face fears in order to dwell deeply in the scriptures and spend my time and energy just reading and studying and praying and asking God to reveal himself to me as I just study his word. How do we know Jesus with, with us? It's not based on how we feel. It's based on the truth that has been revealed in Scripture. Um, Jesus goes on to tell Paul in verse 9 again that no one will attack you or to harm you. Jesus will protect you. He will. That is a truth that is found in Scripture. And then lastly, Jesus talks about how he has many people in this city who are my people. And what that basically means is Jesus is saying, Hey, Paul, many more people in Corinth will be saved because of your ministry in this city. So what I want you to do is just set up camp and continue to, um, to tell people about me. Um, when we arrived in this city to begin the church plant, I loved what some of my dear pastor friends would tell me. They would say, hey, Jesus has been at work in this city. Don't think you've arrived. And suddenly, God's at work. God has been at work. And all he's doing is inviting you and your church family to be involved in what he's already been doing. Okay? I'm 38. Okay? I'm coming up to 40. Before you know it, I'm 80 years old, and then maybe 90, and then I'm dead and gone. And guess what? When I die and we all die, 
Jesus, if he hasn't come back and established his reign on this earth, he's going to continue his work in this city. And that helps me because when it comes to the idea of sharing the gospel, I put too much pressure on myself to get things right, to say all the right things. And a lot of times I think it's up to me to make sure I say the right things because if I don't, someone, whoever I'm speaking to is doomed, right? You think, gosh, you come out of a gospel conversation and you're, gosh, oh, I just butchered the gospel, um, the gospel presentation. That means that person is doomed and they're going to hell or something and they'll never know Jesus. No, Jesus is at work and he invites us to participate with him in this city. And you know what all of this does? All of this, everything we've covered so far, what does it do? It just magnifies Jesus. It makes it all about Jesus. Okay? When it comes to like Paul's time in Corinth and his worries and his need for Jesus, who does he turn to? Jesus. That is what we're about. Let's never get sick, okay, of exalting Jesus. Let's never get sick of being all about Jesus because it's all about Jesus. He's the one at work and he, we are his instruments in his hands to bring about his purposes in this city. And so while we're here, let's not be afraid. Let's continue to live radically for Jesus. Why? Because he's not left us or abandoned us. He's with us. And he'll continue his work in us and through us hundreds and thousands of years from now. All right? Let's pray. God, thank you once again for your love and your grace. Thank you for everything you've revealed to us this morning. May, may you be glorified. May you be glorified. May your name became, become um, famous in this city and Jesus may we be obsessed with who you are um, help us in your name we pray amen